Okay, welcome to another episode of Leona's Pod. Today we have a good friend and a guest, Jeff Shen, join us on this episode. Jeff has been a longtime friend. We know each other for at least like 10 years at this point, and I have seen his career just accelerate from being a founder to being executive at NVIDIA. And he was one of the entrepreneurs I know that has the most resiliency as well as thoughtfulness in the space of artificial intelligence and also robotic space. So today we're happy to have Jeff on the show and have him kind of talk about his entrepreneurial journey as well as going through some of the AI trends that we'd be observing as well. So Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, good to, thanks for having me. This is actually my first podcast, so take it easy on me, Jay. No, it's, it's going to be great. Oh, by the way, so we also have Jenny alongside with me co-hosting this show as well. So before we start, maybe Jeff, talk to us and talk to the listeners a little bit about your background and how you grow up, where you grow up, and what's your story like to where you are. Yeah, yeah. So I've always been an engineer, I think, since I was very young, taking things apart when I was a little kid, putting them back together, building things out of cardboard. So I've always liked that and also had a lot of interest in business as well. So I remember in elementary school, used to sell stuff when I was in junior high school. My cousin and I actually had a comic company and we'd go and sell comics that he drew. So like both sides of that. And that's eventually why I got into entrepreneurship. But yeah, so through kind of college, I did an undergrad in electrical engineering, but I've always kind of done software on the side as well. And then went to grad school for electrical engineering as well. I kind of dropped out of my PhD program and at that point had decided to go and start companies. And that's actually the part of the story of how Jay and I met because my advisor from grad school was working at a firm that Jay worked at. And so that's how we got, eventually got connected several years later. But yeah, I mean, to kind of sum up and started a number of companies in the embedded side, went into analytics and big data and got into kind of machine learning. So had built a machine learning team back probably in 2010, 2010, 2011. So, I mean, that's almost a dozen years ago on the analytics side. And then eventually started a robotics company and did that for a few years. And then in 2000, I think it was 2018, joined NVIDIA and did a number of things there including kind of leading the product or the product marketing side for the data science products over at NVIDIA, and then spent probably about three, three and a half years on the autonomous vehicle side and kind of leading the product team for our AI infrastructure and just general kind of software infrastructure and tooling, as well as kind of program management. So how do you stitch the, this very, very large project together? How do you get the timelines to work together? How do you get the teams communicating? How do you plan things out? got a very, very good view of how things are built and how everything fits together, right? Both from a, the engineering side, as well as organizationally, what does a several thousand person organization, engineering organization look like when it's working together towards a single product, right? So yeah, yep, learned a lot over the last several years and it's been a pretty interesting journey. Now I bet, especially I think your perspective will be interesting because you went from being a startup founder, founding multiple companies was one that went actually at series C stage and then you start a robotic company and then you become a part of the bigger company and then just like having those type of perspective is super interesting to me. What is it like transitioning from being a startup founder who raised tons of capital to join a part of something bigger, a bigger organization? Is there a mental shift for you? And also after having the experience that you have, 
would you want to do a startup again? Yeah. So lots of good questions in there. I think really depends largely on what company you end up in, right? And I think each company has a different DNA. There's companies that become a lot more corporate and structured, kind of Google being a good example of that, where I think there's many layers of bureaucracy. Things are much more stable and it's a little bit slower in general. And people have a lot more freedom to kind of do things because you're not going to go out of business in the next six months. I think NVIDIA was a very unique experience because I think it was halfway in between a startup and a very large company. The founder is still the CEO there and he runs the company like an incubator. In fact, you know, I had a, a great opportunity to work with him. And one of the first things he said to me after seeing my startup background was, hey, think of me as your VC and I'm funding you to, to do your startups. And so he has a very entrepreneurial spirit in the company. He's been there almost 30 years now, I think, but he still runs it very much like a startup. So depending on the projects we worked on, I worked on some smaller projects, which felt like a startup, but we had access to large amounts of resources for marketing, for engineering. We could tap into other parts of the company for sales. We had a large sales team that we could deploy. We did that on one of the projects I worked on. And you don't need to worry about the next paycheck or financing or, or try to get money. So I think that's a big difference versus at a startup. I think you can move faster. You have a lot more control over the culture of the company, how things function. But there's a lot of things when you're in a large company where if there's certain politics that you have to deal with, there's only a certain amount you can do. Whereas in a small company, if you're running it and you have control over what you want the company to be, who you hire, how you want it to function. And so there's a lot more freedom and flexibility. The trade-off being that you need to make sure you got, let's say a hundred people in your team, you got to make sure you can pay them. You got to always be thinking about the cash flow, financing. There's a lot of on your mind, but I think both are really interesting. And I learned from both a lot of different things. But in general, I think having experiences from both sides is, is very, very helpful. Yeah, that's amazing. I think this would be a good segue kind of talking about a lot of the AI trend and AI stuff that we've been seeing at Leonis Capital. I think one of the fundamental driver or one of the key strategic position for the next generation of AI companies is about the compute power and, and, and at the chip layer. So from that perspective, NVIDIA is sitting at a really interesting spot. I guess before we dive into a lot more technical questions, maybe kind of zoom out, like if you are a startup founder today, what would be the opportunity that you get excited about in the AI space in general? Is it more on the infrastructure layer, more on the application layer, or just broadly what excites you these days? Yeah. So for me personally, I liked a little bit more on the application side. And, and as you mentioned before, since I was young, I like building systems. So systems with hardware and software and kind of mixing things together. So for me, the robotics side is, is very, very interesting, but I've also done a lot on the infrastructure side as well. And I think it's, it all comes down a lot to personal preference about what you, what you want to do. The B2C sort of application side, I think can grow very quickly, very exponentially, but it tends to be more hit driven. If you go on the infrastructure side, which my previous, my first real VC backed startup was on, I think there's a lot of very, very predictable growth that you can see in that particular space. There's plenty of opportunity, I think, on both sides, both sides of the fence there. So at the end of the day, if you were asking for advice to entrepreneurs, I think it's just really focused on what you're interested in. Because at the end of the day, that's what is going to drive you on a day-to-day -day basis to improve and grow and continue thinking about how to build a successful company.
Yeah, interesting. I think for us, we feel like the space is evolving so fast, either from the foundation layer model of those names everybody knows about. The models evolve really fast, and there is a lot of things that's going on in terms of subsidies going to making sure that these models can spin out compute properly, efficiently, and at scale as well. So I guess the question that we're thinking and the question for you is that just how important is compute for the current generated AI wave? And the other follow-up question from my side is when ChatGTP launched, it caught mainstream by surprise, but obviously for tech insiders, we have seen something that's under the hood that's happening. Is it from chip makers perspective, is it something that they foresee a long time ago? Or is it something that obviously right now is a great trend and that writing the trend, well, summarize it, like just how important is compute for the current AIGC wave and how do you see it happen and unfold over the next three to five years? Yeah. So maybe I'll start with your last question first or your middle question first. So I joined NVIDIA back in around 2018 and at that point, I think have been probably about five years or so since the original convolutional neural nets has started to take off. So internally at NVIDIA, there were very large investments made in both the pure software R&D side. We were hiring a ton of deep learning people at the company really to try to get a really good understanding of where the research was going to help accelerate the research and then to see what needed to be accelerated from a, a hardware standpoint. And I think Jensen's vision at NVIDIA has been seeing that AI was going to need lots of compute years ago. It's probably like at least 10 years ago. And so internally, there's a lot of work being done to kind of lay the foundations for that. And over the time period that I was there, there was a lot of engagement between NVIDIA and a lot of the internal research, but also a lot of the external research organizations to see where things were headed. And because if you got to look at the acceleration, you really need to have an understanding of what the essential algorithms are or else you're not going to do a good job accelerating. And so if you kind of look originally at convolutional neural nets, there's a lot of work done there to figure out how to do, accelerate that through a combination of the fundamental hardware and hardware architecture, as well as the CUDA abstraction layer, as well as the even higher level software and working with companies like Google to accelerate that. So it ends up being full stack. So a lot of that was in place quite a long time ago. As new architecture started coming out, like the transformer one, we picked that up. I remember when the papers first came out with BERT and transformers, internally, there was a ton of excitement at NVIDIA and even the CEO was very engaged in what was going on. And you can kind of see several years later, right now, NVIDIA's latest hopper architecture can now accelerate the transformer architecture. And again, that comes from a fundamental hardware that had been architected several years back and then layering software to make sure it steers things in the right direction and bridges the gap. But yeah, I think this was fairly predictable. There was a period of time though, when I was in NVIDIA where this initial wave of AI was really exciting and that's the convolutional neural nets. But then there was also a period of several years where all of a sudden, like it looked like a bunch of demos and only very, very large companies were able to have any real success uh, being like Meta, Google, e-companies. But there was this drop in interest for a while with kind of deep learning before it really re-accelerated again. And so 
there is that trough that happens with every technology where people get really excited and it drops down for a while and then it accelerates. And I think we're in that second wave right now. Yeah, I think speaking about when the Transformers were released, I remember there was a 2018 OpenAI paper that was talking about AI and compute. And the conclusion there is that the largest AI training runs have a 3.4 month doubling period. Not sure if you read that paper, but it's quite famous in the AI world back then. But Moore's Law is like a two-year doubling period for transistors. A lot of people are talking about Moore's Law being dead. How is this AI versus compute going to play out in the next five years, 10 years? Yeah. It's a really interesting question and it's something internally, especially in the area that we were working on in AV, requires very, very large compute clusters. We had thousands of GPUs that we were using for AV development, but compute from Moore's law is slowing down a lot just because of physics. It's becoming more difficult and more expensive to produce smaller transistors and they're becoming less efficient. There's also heat problems as well. So when you have to pack so much compute into such a small space, you end up, you have to consume a lot of power and heat becomes an issue. And you can kind of see that with latest generation of GPUs, both in gaming GPUs, where they're getting, consuming more power, they're getting larger, bigger fan. And you can see that with the, also the data center ones where it's very, very complex cooling systems that are used to cool these GPUs because they're just producing so much power or they're consuming so much power. And I think the big thing here is that Data scaling has been very, very effective. And so far, it seems like that's a, one of the most straightforward, but most expensive ways to improve model performance is by throwing more data, creating larger models at it and throwing more compute, more iterations at it. It's kind of changing the paradigm of compute going from more, if you look at like the general purpose CPUs to now you're, there's a huge focus on GPUs, which are somewhere between. CPUs and ASICs are dedicated hardware for very, very specific tasks. But yeah, the compute requirements are growing drastically and it's turning to massively parallel compute, very similar to like supercomputers, which you know, NVIDIA has spent a lot of time in high performance supercompute. And the big change is that this parallelization also requires you to have a lot of IO bandwidth because one model comes out at the end of the day. But in order for the model to be trained, you need to be able to pass data in between all the different computers for training. And so it's not just compute that's becoming a, a bottleneck, it's memory and IO, I think is a, a huge one that's just vastly under uh, sort of not talked about quite as much as a compute one. And as compute becomes even more important as models get larger and memory and IO, like everything, the compute infrastructure becomes more important for LLMs. Does this mean that NVIDIA is the ultimate winner in the LLM AI arms race that we're seeing nowadays? I'm sure this is a question that people have asked you. Like, <laughs> it's certainly a question that a lot of AI developers have been talking about a lot. Well, I'm still holding on to all my NVIDIA stocks. I think NVIDIA is the easiest to pick out winner in this whole thing. I was thinking about this last night since you asked me the question over email, but I think it also depends on how things evolve from the algorithmic standpoint. And so if you, if you look at general purpose CPUs, they're very good at doing everything, but they're not very fast and they're not very efficient at doing them. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have dedicated ASICs that where if the algorithm doesn't change a whole lot, they're very, very fast. They're very efficient on power. They're much cheaper to produce because you just need a lot less. There's less layers of abstraction in between. NVIDIA right now is at a really sweet spot where they're sitting in between the two, where you get 
general purpose within a specific domain that needs to be accelerated extremely fast. And so NVIDIA's do really well there. One thing I think NVIDIA's always done pretty well is figure out what's the right layer of abstraction um, and then be able to accelerate behind that. And they did that in the 3D graphics days as well, very well. And it's one of the reasons why they were so successful. But within this performance computing space, that CUDA layer is the one that abstracts the hardware. And the uses for high-performance computing tend to be more fragmented. That abstraction layer is really important and you need the hardware to be a little bit more general, which makes it harder to do and harder for a very specific company to do. But what you are seeing is that as some of these architectures become more prolific and they start to converge, there are lots of companies that are starting to build ASICs to do these tasks. And so one of the most high profile examples is Tesla with their dojo and also their hardware within the Tesla cars, they've all gone down the ASIC route because they're looking at what do I need this to do? And they don't need their ASICs and their training, like Dojo, their training computer to do all the different types of things that the NVIDIA one does. And so if they narrow down what it needs to do, obviously they can build something that's a lot faster, more efficient and better value from a cost perspective. So I think right now NVIDIA is easily the winner, but if you start seeing things converge a lot, I think it's going to change, change the story a bit. And there's going to be other players that are allowed to creep into the space. But I think it's also such an obvious area that they are not the only competitors. Google's building their own chips. Microsoft's been rumored to be building their own chips, which I'm almost certain. Yeah. Amazon, the Chinese, Baidu, all these folks, I think they're all doing the same thing as well. So it'll be an interesting next kind of five to 10 years to see. But right now, I think NVIDIA is the clear leader and the investments that NVIDIA has made over the last 10 years or so, I think are starting to pay off, right? But it was really a decade plus strategy that was put into place by NVIDIA. Interesting. If you put your investor stock aside, put yeah. on the head of investors, is there any opportunity for startups to come in and play in this space? The answer could be no, because it's so capital intensive. But every now and then, there might be an opportunity, like the gap of opportunity to something innovative happen that just caught yeah. everybody by surprise. But I wonder if that will be the case in the new AIGC wave or, or maybe not. Like, what do you see? You mean on the hardware side? On the hardware side. I think the hardware side, frankly, is pretty difficult for people to get into. Very, very high barriers to entry, both on hardware, hardware manufacturing, even with Fabulous. And then on top of that, I kind of go back to NVIDIA because they're the leaders in this space. One of the things that a lot of people don't really understand is the massive investment in the APIs, the developer community, mm -hmm. the software abstraction layer that's there, that's very, very hard to replicate. And so if you look at AMD or Intel or some of the other competitors in the space, maybe their hardware is almost as fast, but um, they're not able to have that entire ecosystem supporting that's been built up over years with people learning how to write CUDA and understanding how to optimize those things. So it'll be interesting to see, but I think it is fairly difficult unless there's some step size change in how the compute is done. And I know there are a few of these companies doing optical or doing the large wafer. I think Cerebus is one of them, but getting to scale, I think is going to be very, very difficult. Maybe showing a prototype is not too bad, but building a big business to compete with NVIDIA, I think is a pr pretty difficult task still. I think yeah. it'll be interesting to see how things evolve because right now, obviously, NVIDIA started from the hardware and that's the core thing of the business. But then, like you said, there is a whole API, there is a whole software ecosystem that's built on top around NVIDIA's hardware and chips. On the other direction, big companies like Google, Amazon, Microsoft, these software companies, 
they start to developing their own chips for their own purpose. Wouldn't be surprised if an AI companies like OpenAI and Dropbox one day they do something similar on the hardware side as well. Might be interesting to see how these players will converge into some sort of dynamic that might be beneficial actually for startup companies who build application layer on top of all these infrastructures. The other question I have is before the AI GC trend really took off, I think when people think about AI, we think about computer vision, think about autonomous vehicles and those so-called predictive AI kind of before the AI GC buzzword took off. How do you see, do you see the connection in these two AI category? How do you conceptually perceive these two trends in general? I think I've been looking into the AI side for the last 20 years. Back when I was in college, I was really interested in neural nets, though they didn't really take off back then in probably another 10, 15 years before things started to take off. But back when I was in college, I took a class at artificial intelligence and it was things like A star search, which are very primitive algorithms to get things done. And then you see things evolve over, over the years to logistic regression and, you know, different type kind of tree-based models for machine learning that are much more algorithmic. And then you get now to the general purpose. And I think the key transition is really around the data. If you look at the more primitive ways that we used to do things, it was basically a bunch of heuristics, which are humans trained as AI GC, and then implementing that sort of knowledge into an algorithm. So it follows the same path of having some data, trying to figure out the patterns of how to map a set of inputs to a set of outputs, but codifying that through a person. Whereas now what you're seeing is you skip the person step and you have large amounts of data that you're able to then map from an input to an output. And so I think anywhere where there is a large enough data set to do that, it's going to be far more effective than trying to use people as the proxy to do this because people have all sorts of biases. You can't ingest nearly as much data as a computer algorithm can. If you look in the autonomous vehicle side, there are two major areas of development that are very, very difficult. One is called perception, or it's really the computer vision side of understanding the world. The other one is planning control. So based on this model that you build on the world that you perceive and a set of directives, how do you plan what the robot or the car is going to do. And the first part of that in computer vision, that's very, very much an AI problem. Back when you're using hand-tuned computer vision algorithms, it's not robust at all. And so that's an obvious one. But what you're seeing now is that even things that are on the control side, which seem much simpler from an algorithmic standpoint than computer vision and something that you could do more with hand, that is also transitioning all over to neural nets because now we have the data to actually use to train models to perform these different tasks. I think it's a, a trend that we'll, we'll continue to see as long as the data is available. And I think that's really the key these days. Yep, it makes sense. I think we talk a lot about more in-depth stuff on this episode, which, which I love. In, to, in the episode, and well, maybe Jenny, you have questions or things they want to talk about as well. Feel free to jump in. Yeah, I have one last question for Jeff, which is, we talked a lot about LLMs and we feel like that traditional methods to AI, like self-driving cars, computer vision, are getting lost in a conversation about AI. So I'm like curious to see what your thoughts are on the other aspects of AI. Well, what are the opportunities in those areas and what are some applications that you're very excited about 
And yeah, what are some other issues aside from LLMs that AI can solve? Yeah, so I think the LLM, natural language processing, that's an obvious one where it's really necessary. But like I was alluding to before talking about, there's lots of applications in the robotic side where, I mean, anywhere where you need to basically deal with a very noisy environment and you have a very noisy set of inputs, it's a very logical place for AI um, to really blossom. And so if you look at robotics as another area where you have to interface with the real world, which is very, very noisy from a computer perspective, it's an area where you have to use something that's able to deal with the noise and sort of this fuzziness. And so that's another area where we can't do it without AI. So if you look at the self-driving car side, originally, I think most companies have started with more of a traditional computer vision approach, but it's just so brittle that it doesn't work in a lot of real world conditions. And so it's very, very narrow in terms of what it can do. Very similar to on the language side as well. And then over time, as AI techniques have been introduced, things start to get more robust. You can generalize a lot more and you're able to sort of filter out the noise and deal with all the different edge cases that you see in the real world, which is very, very difficult to do. It's not like everything's in a computer where if you calculate a distance to something, exactly what the distance is, you're able to measure it. In a computer, there's always some type of error in the system. And so being able to deal with error across the board, but still construct as in the case of perception, construct what the real world looks like is something where you have to use AI to solve. And so that's an area. And then, like I mentioned on the control, interfacing with the real world, actuating back out into the real world is also a very noisy uh, phenomenon where you have to deal with different motors and sensors and things that are very unpredictable and it's very hard to hard code anything. And so that's another area where AI is I think going to, going to really make a, a big impact. If you look at, for example, Boston Robotics and some of these pretty cool robots that have been built over the years, there's a lot of fine tuning of algorithms and heuristics that were used to build that. And it took a long, long, long time to do. But now we're transitioning. You see a lot of the work that Google's been doing, I think in DeepMind and some of the other research organizations, robots and actuation are all being trained with large amounts of data, both from the real world as well as through simulation, which is a whole other kind of topic that's very, very interesting to talk about. But those areas, I think, will also see a similar inflection point over the next few years that we're starting to see with ChatGPT. I think this is great. I think one thing that we're realizing at much a deeper level is with AI companies across the stack, either at the foundation layer or at the application side, things just evolve so fast. It's like the days just equal to years and months, like compared to the previous technology evolution. Super excited about where we stand now and looking into the future. But one last question, it might be a hard one. 10 years from now, make a prediction. How do we drive our car? How do we live our lives? If you just project into the future 10 years from now, what would that be like for you? So I have my two hats on. One, which is what do you think the technology is capable of doing? I think within 10 years, I think you'll see self-driving cars for sure. I think a lot of the tasks we do today, right, will be pretty automated. Another area that I was exposed to a lot is marketing. And right now I'm looking at the whole marketing space and just seeing through generative AI, through predictive analytics, all these things, you could automate so much on the marketing side that's all been black magic before. And many, many of the tasks we do today, not sure, you're gonna have a lot more free time though. So I think there's a lot on the, I think the more interesting part is as a person, what do you want to be doing? And how are you going to spend your time? And 
what's the most interesting, best use of your time? And I think that's more of a personal question. But I think as we spend more time on computers and on our phones, we spend less time outside. And has a whole other set of consequences there. But yeah, I think things are going to be drastically different. I think it's very, very difficult to predict what's going to happen given it's, it's very, very exponential. But I think th some things won't change. A lot of the day-to-day -day stuff won't change, but it's going to get a lot easier, easier for things to, to do. You need to think a lot about how you want to spend all your spare time. And also, how do you want to make money? Jobs, I think, are going to change pretty drastically. Yeah, I think it. it's definitely... Very interesting inflection point. Maybe an interesting scenario that technology 10 years from now will free us actually away from spending so much time on technology because they become invisible. That would be an interesting future scenario to look forward to. But it's also an interesting question from that perspective because then you'll get people who still want to work 60, 80 hours a week, but with very high leverage. And then they'll be able to generate massive amounts of value versus somebody who maybe doesn't want to work that many hours a week anymore. And so you end up with this question around, well, how are people going to sustain and how is income going to work? Gets into a whole other, I think, discussion. There's a topic for another episode. Interesting, interesting stuff. Well, thank you so much, Chef, for joining us for the podcast. We really enjoyed the conversation and hopefully we'll invite you back in five years. And yep. it was maybe, maybe earlier than that, but yeah, <laughs> we'll revisit this episode for sure. All right. Thanks again, Jeff. Okay. That's all for today. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Jeff Sun. For more conversations like this, subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. If you're working on anything interesting in AI, especially in an early stage startup, feel free to reach out to us over email or LinkedIn.